Jesus once said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand, Mark 3, 24 and 25. I think it's safe to say we're living in a world that is divided against itself. There are religious divisions, of course, political divisions, social divisions, economic divisions, governmental divisions, right, moral divisions, ideological divisions. We could go on and on and on. The, the world is a divided place. In fact, it always has been. Of course, you don't even have to leave our own borders to find all of that. We have those same divisions right here at home across America and in our communities. The truth is we are living in an exceedingly divided society. And those kingdoms, the, uh, the kingdoms of this world, cannot and will not stand forever. The church of Jesus Christ, however, according to Jesus, the church will endure. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. And listen, he not only prophesied about us when he made that statement, but at times Jesus even prayed for us. Do you know that? He prayed for you. And he prayed for me. In the gospel according to John, this was his prayer to the Father. He said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. John 17, 9. And just in case you think he was only praying for those original disciples all the way back there in the first century, if you skip down to verse 20, this is the same prayer. He prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's all of us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So he's praying that we, his church, that we will be unified, that we will be one. In other words, no division. Why? He continues, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. <laughs> Do you understand what Jesus is saying here as he prays this prayer? He's saying our unity in the church validates our testimony about Jesus to the rest of the world. Now, please don't miss this because it is of the utmost truly profound importance. Our testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ is validated in the eyes and minds and hearts of people throughout this world based on the unity that we have within the church. Just listen to the next two verses in his prayer. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. John 17, 20 through 23. Earlier in John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. Okay, I've said it many times before. Our testimony is at the mercy of our unity, which means what our world needs, what our country needs, what our community needs. Listen, what humanity must have 
If there's to be any hope whatsoever of this gospel message being received in the unbelieving world around us, they unequivocally must have a church that is united. Which is why Jesus and the apostles were so harsh toward those who sowed division into his church. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Great, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now listen, the thrust of this entire passage is reconciliation first. However, Jesus says if the person who causes the offense against another Christian is unrepentant, unwilling to be reconciled to his or her fellow believer, even after several attempts have been made within the local church assembly, rather than allowing division in the church to remain, Jesus says treat that person as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now look. In the first century Jewish context that this was written in, Gentiles and tax collectors were outsiders. They were actually shunned by the rest of the community. Tax collectors were given their posts by the Roman authorities through a bidding system. And the way the tax collectors made their personal income was by levying higher taxes than Rome actually required. And so often these tax collectors made obscene profits off of the backs of their own people, which is why the Jews considered them to be traitors who belonged at the very lowest level of society. Except, of course, for the Gentiles, who the Jews typically remained separated from altogether because these Gentiles were irreparably unclean, vermin, as far as the Jews were concerned. You see... Gentiles and tax collectors to the Jews were outcasts who did not belong within the Jewish community. And this is how Jesus says the church is to treat those who intentionally and unrepentantly sow division into his church. The Apostle Paul said, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In other words, treat him as a tax collector and a Gentile. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Titus 3, 10 and 11. These are extremely uh, harsh words. In his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, that's a fellow Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In other words, treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. This is harsh. You're seeing a pattern here, though. Referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the apostle John wrote, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, 
do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. 2 John 1.10. Look, we, we could keep going on and on here with examples in Scripture. The point is Jesus and his disciples after him Clearly, they didn't play around when it came to people deliberately sowing division into the church, whether it was an unresolved offense between church members, unrepentant sin, false teaching, variations on the gospel message. Anything that could cause division within the church was absolutely not tolerated. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. Which is why guarding the unity of the church is to be a top priority for us, according to Jesus and his apostles. It's why as church leadership today, we confront those who are discontent and sowing discord, disunity into the body. It's why we fiercely defend the purity of the gospel message when people come here and try to teach a different version of the gospel than the one Jesus taught. They've tried it here before. It's why we call sin, sin. It's why we're painfully careful about curriculums for small groups and Bible studies that they're not teaching some variation of the gospel. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. And a house that cannot stand is incapable of testifying to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And so again... This is why we're so careful about what we teach and how we teach it here. It's not because we're stodgy old religious people. No, it's because we're infinitely more concerned with the purity, integrity, and unity of our message than we are with the mass appeal of our message. All right? There may well be examples of this somewhere. I don't know, but I've personally never seen a church fold its doors and cease to exist because of outside forces coming against it. However, I have seen many churches, in fact, every single church that I've ever seen fold its doors and cease to exist did so because of division from within the church. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. It's what we're going to see among God's people in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Judges where the lack of unity among the people of God reaches a fevered pitch in these last five chapters of the book. And so we're going to actually work through a couple of those today because they're not very long. So let's pick up where we left off last week at chapter 17 and see what we can learn about the need for unity among God's people, not only then, but today as well. We'll begin in chapter 17 by reading the first six verses. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. 
And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Talk about a house divided. Okay, this man Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother who utters a curse toward whoever took it. And then all of a sudden, Micah admits to stealing the silver and returns it to his mother. Well, why would he do that? Was his conscience simply getting the better of him? Well, probably not. <laughs> you see, in the ancient Near East, curses were considered to be very real and very powerful. And the fact that his mother speaks the curse to Micah strongly suggests that she suspected him to be the thief. And so she makes sure that he hears the curse. And of course it works because he's worried about the effects of this curse in his own life. And so Micah fesses up and returns the silver. And it was believed at the time that the only way a curse could be nullified or reversed or overturned was for the one who uttered the curse to then pronounce a blessing over the cursed individual, which is why Micah's mother blesses her son by dedicating the 1,100 pieces of silver back to the Lord in Micah's honor so he won't suffer the ill effects of the curse. Except for the fact that she doesn't actually dedicate all 1,100 pieces as she had vowed to do. She only dedicates 200 pieces, keeping, of course, the other 900 for herself. And the way she dedicates the 200 pieces to the Lord in Micah's honor is by having a pagan idol made out of it, a carved wooden image that was coated in silver. And so we have a thieving son and his lying mother now committing apostasy together by first having a religious idol made. And then Micah sets up a shrine complete with this idol and an ephod and other household gods. And to top it all off, he ordains his own son as his personal priest. Okay, everything about this household is divided on so many different levels. First of all, Micah, the name his mother gave him in the ancient Hebrew, means who is like Yahweh. And then each time Micah's mother uses the name Lord, she uses the formal divine name Yahweh, the personal name of the Hebrew God. The point being, these people understood who God was and how he was supposed to be worshipped. And the word shrine in verse 5 is literally translated as a house of God, which means they set up their own personal household temple in their home, except there was only to be one temple for the Israelites, which at the time was at Shiloh. But Micah sets up a temple in his home anyway, and then he fills it with pagan idols and an ephod. That was a ceremonial garment, an ornate ceremonial garment to be worn only by the high priest, which was used to inquire of God through divination on behalf of the people of Israel, which means there was only to be one ephod in all of Israel kept in the one temple in Shiloh with the one high priest used to worship the one true God as directed by the Mosaic law. And yet Micah violates all of that and makes his own son, who is not a Levite, not a descendant of Aaron as required in the law for priests, uh, which you could find in Exodus 28, Exodus 40, number 16, number 17. And yet he makes his son a priest anyway, effectively setting himself up as the high priest which explains the ephod that he made for himself. See, everything about this family is dishonest 
and disingenuous. They're divided from one another. They are divided from the Lord, and they are divided from His Word, and yet it gets even worse. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your living. The Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. So Micah is happy for his own son to be his personal priest, at least until a better option comes along. And actually, uh, an actual Levite priest happens to be sojourning in the area. We aren't told why uh, the Levite has left Bethlehem, but it appears he was in search of provision for himself. Uh, under the Mosaic law at the time, the Levites were allotted 48 cities throughout the land for their personal use as they did not have their own inheritance. But during the period of the judges, uh, with so much political and social and religious unrest as we've seen over the last several weeks, all bets were off, especially for these Levites. And so this young Levite man, we learn uh, in the next chapter, his name is Jonathan, is sojourning or searching for a new home. And as he travels through the hill country of Ephraim, he meets Micah, who has a nice little temple operation going on at his house. And so Micah offers the Levite a permanent position in the family business as his personal priest, along with an annual salary and benefits. He's completely displacing, by the way, his very own son, because for Micah, this Levite is an upgrade, regardless of whatever commitment he's already made to his own flesh and blood. This family is entirely divided at this point, with one broken commitment after another, which eventually rubs off on this young Levite man, as we'll see. Why? Because dishonesty breeds division. Right? You cannot practice dishonesty as a matter of course in your life and expect there to be unity in your relationships. And yet there are people who are consistently dishonest, people who regularly manipulate the truth as a matter of course. They persist in twisting the truth in order to either justify other behavior in their life or to try and influence the outcome of some situation to their favor. And look, you can get away with that for a period of time, but in the end, it will always affect your relationships negatively. Every time. It will create division between you and the people who care about you. And yet these are the very same people when confronted with their dishonesty who will very often play the victim because they're unwilling to confront and deal with their own behavior. And so the cycle of dishonesty and division continues in their lives. People who in most cases are constantly surrounded by controversy and drama and strife in their relationships because dishonesty breeds division. And yet it's far more than just controversy and drama and strife because a house divided cannot stand, which means eventually when we practice dishonesty in an ongoing way, right? I'm not talking about that you 
tell a lie once in a while in your life. We've all certainly been guilty of that. I'm talking about practicing dishonesty as a regular part of our lives and in our relationships. When we do that, the house that we're living in will eventually come crumbling down around us. This is exactly what happened to Micah, as we'll see in a moment. And listen, you can apply this to every part of your life, okay? If you regularly practice dishonesty in your marriage, eventually, if not corrected, the division that is created between you and your spouse because of that dishonesty will cause your marriage to fail. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. If you consistently practice dishonesty in your business, eventually your business will fail because a house divided cannot stand. If there's dishonesty being practiced in the church in an ongoing way and it is not confronted and corrected, especially with the leadership, eventually the division that ongoing dishonesty creates will cause the church to fail. I've seen it happen because a house divided cannot stand. By the way, being honest with yourself needs to be included in this conversation because if you constantly tell yourself that you are worthless, you will constantly be fighting a war within yourself because that is a lie and dishonesty even with yourself breeds division. If you constantly tell yourself you cannot be the person God created you to be, you will fight a never-ending battle within yourself because that is a lie from hell and those lies breed division. Right? If you constantly tell yourself that you have to please everyone around you all the time, you will constantly beat yourself up inside because of the division that lie has created within you. Now instead, if in everything that you do, you pursue truth. Listen, there will still be battles in your life. There will still be difficult days because sometimes the truth is hard to hear. Sometimes the truth is hard to deliver. Sometimes the truth is hard to face. Nonetheless, it is the truth that will lead you where you need to be, even when it is difficult to follow. In that same prayer of Jesus that we were reading earlier in verse 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you live in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then of himself, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay, the truth is Jesus Christ himself and his word, which means the pursuit of truth in your life is the pursuit of Jesus Christ and his word in your life, which is how people will know that you are truly his disciple. Okay, dishonesty divides. Truth unites. And when we are united, it testifies to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that is of such profound importance to Jesus that he said anyone who threatens that unity among you, anyone who's unwilling to repent and be reconciled for creating that division among you, you treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. Pursue truth. And you pursue 
unity. Pursue dishonesty, and whether you realize it or not, you're pursuing division in your own life and in your own relationships. This is a hard lesson that Micah was about to learn. Let's keep reading. Chapter 18, we'll read the first 20 verses. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. They said to them, Go, explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go under is, is under the eye of the Lord. And then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking in nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and behold, it is very good. Will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth." So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. And on this account, that place is called Mahana-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses... There are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image. Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite and at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So the people of the tribe of Dan send out spies to find a land they can settle in because the Danites never did occupy the territory allotted to them from the time the Israelites first entered Canaan because of the opposition originally of the Amorites and then later from the Philistines. And so up to now, they've been confined to a very small area in the region of Zorah and Eshtol. It's the same area where Samson's activities were centered that we've been going through over the last few weeks. 
And so the Danites send out their spies who come across the house of Micah and his Levite priest and they ask the Levite for guidance in regard to their mission to which he gives them a favorable reply which ultimately factors heavily into future events. But for now, the spies continue on their way and eventually find a suitable area to settle in. It's a remote place where the local residents not only possess much wealth, but also would not be expecting an attack against them because of the remoteness of the area. And so the spies return to their tribe. They rally 600 troops to go with them to seize for themselves this new homeland. And on the way, of course, they stop again at Micah's house, except this time they're looking for more than just advice from this Levite. This time they want the Levite and all of the religious contents of Micah's shrine to go with them. And, and look, it's not because of the material value of those items. After all, they're getting ready to conquer a land for themselves that is full of wealth. No, they want Jonathan the Levite and all the tools of his trade to come with them because his earlier recommendation proved to be true, right? He, he told the spies in verse 6 that their journey would succeed and indeed it had. So he's proven himself, at least in their minds, as an effective priest. And so while the 600 armed men stand at the gate, no doubt to send a message, the spies enter the house and take the idols, the household gods and the ephod, and then invite the Levite to come with them, where instead of being a priest to one man, he would be a priest to an entire tribe. And so in his delight, the Levite gladly accepts their offer and he leaves with them. Forget any loyalty the Levite may have had to Micah. And honestly, how could anyone, especially Micah, be surprised? The entire household of Micah was built on lies and disloyalty and dishonesty. And like dishonesty, disloyalty breeds division. Micah was disloyal to his mother. His mother was disloyal to him. He was disloyal to his son. They were all disloyal to God. This was the culture at Micah's house. It was every man for himself. This was the culture, this Levite who was more than happy to sell his services to Micah to begin with in direct violation of the Mosaic law. This was the culture he was living in. It's an every man for himself culture. And so honestly, why would anyone be surprised that the Levite is now selling out this man Micah who had become like a father to him? Well, it's because, you see, no matter how close their relationship seemed to be, Micah's house was rife with disloyalty, and disloyalty breeds division. And, of course, a house that is divided, what? It cannot stand. And like the Levite who was supposed to be devoted to a life of service uh, to God, but chose loyalty to himself over loyalty to anyone else, including God. Listen, we too are living in an every man for himself culture, and yet as Christ followers, our lives are supposed to be devoted to serving others as we deny ourselves. It's Jesus Christ first, then our brothers and sisters in Christ as we share the truth of this gospel with the rest of the world. We're somewhere else down the line. And yet when we pour the vast majority of our resources and time and money and passion and devotion into ourselves and what we want, instead of pouring all of that into the body of Christ and what he wants, we're being more loyal to ourselves than we are to him and to each other. 
And listen, that is how division creeps its way into the church when we're more concerned about ourselves than we are with one another. When we give whatever is left instead of giving our very best. When we're more interested in being blessed than we are in being a blessing. When we demand more from others than we demand from ourselves, we're being disloyal to God and to each other. And that disloyalty causes division in his church. The Apostle Paul said, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10. You see, we should, we should constantly be looking for ways to show more love and honor to others than they show to us. But do you realize how incredibly counterintuitive that is in our culture today? It seems like every other picture with a saying attached to it in social media, and I mean by Christians, it's about respecting yourself, believing in yourself, and loving yourself, having faith in yourself, and look, I get it, right? We said earlier, it is very important that we understand our value in Christ. It is. He died for you, so yes, you are worth everything to Him, without question. But listen, what about respecting and believing in and loving and having faith in others regardless of how they treat you? That is not what our culture teaches, but it had better be what is actually going on inside the church every single day if the world is ever going to give us and our message the time of day. Because listen, the gospel isn't about being respected and honored and admired by others. And it's not about looking at yourself in the mirror every morning and giving yourself a pep talk about how great you are. No, the gospel is about laying your very life down and giving up your own need for respect and honor and admiration from others. In fact, it's about loving and respecting and honoring those people every day who may never love or respect or honor you back. Our culture, listen, our, our culture will never understand that. But they will respond to it when they see us living that way. Because that kind of unity validates our testimony. That is what loyalty to Christ and to each other looks like. And listen, nothing will unify the church faster than when Christians exert themselves in trying to outdo one another in showing honor. Micah couldn't understand that. In fact, he saw himself as a victim, even though he was simply being treated precisely as he had treated everyone else in his life because he didn't understand that dishonesty and disloyalty breed division. Let's finish our story for today then. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, probably by Micah himself, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us lest angry fellows fall upon you. 
And you lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they went were uh, too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the Danites take the Levite and all of Micah's religious idols and they put them and their children and families and livestock in the front with the 600 armed warriors behind so that when Micah comes out with his neighbors to try and retake his property, he has to go through the army first. And of course, he plays the victim, right? Because they stole from him. Even though he stole from his mother, he plays the victim because they convinced the Levite to be disloyal to him, even though he was disloyal to his own family and to God. And then finally, after confronting the Danites, he makes his first truly smart move in the entire story. He shuts his mouth and goes back home. Micah's house has unraveled because it was divided from the start. And a house divided cannot stand. And so the Danites continue on to Laish, this remote territory where they easily overthrow the local population. It was either Phoenicians or Arameans, uh, in large part because there was no one near to come to their aid in the event of an enemy attack such as this one. Uh, this area, by the way, is mentioned in ancient Egyptian texts all the way back from about 1850 to 1825 B.C., from which the area has been identified as modern Tel el Kadai, which was cut off from Aram, uh, modern-day Syria, by the bulk of Mount Hermon and was also cut off from Phoenicia by the Lebanon range. And so whichever group this was actually living there, either way, their nearest friendly neighbors weren't nearly close enough. And so the Danites settled there and promptly set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And so in disobedience to the Mosaic law, they steal from another Israelite. In disobedience to the law, they set up and worship pagan images and idols, which are banned all throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And then in disobedience to the law, they set up their own temple and their own priestly order. And in the process, Dan becomes a very important center for Baal worship after the split of the kingdom of Israel following Solomon's death and Jeroboam's creation of an Israelite religion in the northern kingdom. As well, they were adjacent to the region of Bashan, which was closely associated with the underworld in Canaanite religion. In other words, the tribe of Dan had allowed their disobedience to separate them from God and their fellow Israelites because along with dishonesty and disloyalty, disobedience breeds division. All right, look, if you're a parent... 
uh, or an employer or a supervisor, uh, if you're a babysitter for that matter, basically if you've ever been in a position of authority over another human being and you give that person an instruction or a rule to follow or a job to do or some kind of directive for them to follow and they blatantly disobey your instructions or rule, right? They don't do that job or follow that directive. First of all, they're not only disobeying that specific instruction you've given them, but they're actually rejecting your authority in their life in that moment, which creates a division in that relationship, okay? When you disobey an authority in your life, you're rejecting that authority in your life in that moment, which breeds division in those relationships because disobedience and unity, those two things cannot coexist in a relationship at the same time. They cannot. So the moment you choose to disobey that authority in your life, that is the moment you've begun to undermine the unity in that relationship. And look, this is what people do with God all the time. We disobey his commands, his word in our lives. We actually reject his authority. And then we wonder why we don't feel as close to him as we should. Or why we don't hear him when we pray. Or why we cannot see him working in our lives. Listen, it's because we've rejected his authority, which creates disunity, a divide in that relationship through our own disobedience. And, and look, it's not like... Uh, it's not like most Christians wake up in the morning and think to themselves, I think I'll disobey God's word for today. No, of course not. We simply allow other things in our lives to have equal or greater influence over us as his word does. As if one doesn't really have any bearing on the other. But the problem with that way of thinking is God's word is meant to influence every single aspect of our lives more than anything else. So ask yourself, when you make significant decisions in your life, what influences those decisions the most? Is it money? Is it an opportunity? Is it your family? Is it some personal interest? Or is it the Word of God? And again, I'm not suggesting that as Christians we're not influenced by the Word of God or the voice of God at all. Of course we are. Right? We read the Bible, we pray, we seek God's guidance. We are certainly influenced by what he has said and what he is saying. Certainly his word is an influence in your life. I don't question that. My question is, is his word the greatest influence in your life? Because look, Micah and the Levite and the Danites, they were including Yahweh in all of their decisions. He was one of their many influences, but he was never their greatest influence. They believed in Yahweh all day long. Micah's mother spent 200 pieces of silver on an idol in dedication to Yahweh. Micah was thrilled when he secured a real live Levite as his priest. In fact, in his own words, he said, Now I know that the Lord, they used the word Yahweh, will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. You see, Yahweh was certainly an influence in their lives. He just wasn't the greatest influence in their lives. And as Christians, we believe in Jesus all day long. That is not the problem. The problem is we believe in a lot of other things just as much or more as we believe in Him. We may not be willing to admit that, 
but just look at the significant decisions you make in your life and then ask yourself, what influenced me the most when I made those decisions? Was it God's word or was it something else? I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us would find that we have allowed ourselves to be influenced by other things in this world as much or more as we are influenced by the Word of God. When you allow other things to influence your life as much or more as Jesus Christ in His Word, you are actually rejecting His authority in your life and creating division in your relationship with Him and with His people. This is exactly what was happening with the Israelites in this story. And as a result, instead of leading other people toward God, they were actually driving other people away from him. And if we are not careful, we will do the very same thing. Jesus was clear. The world will know what true Christianity is when they see us unified. In fact, he said our testimony to the world about him is entirely dependent upon our unity. Listen, Jesus didn't die for us to become a half-hearted, half-committed, lukewarm church more influenced by the world than we are by him. No, he died for men and women who would give up everything to follow him. People who would inextricably, irreparably, irreversibly bind themselves together as one body united by one spirit called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus died. He died so that we might become one. Why? So that the world may believe. Can you see what Jesus was trying to tell us? A house divided cannot stand. But a house united will change the world. Amen. Let's pray.